Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. From 1996 to 2008, Guatemala was one of the world's top sources of adoptive children to the United States. This rather dubious honor belied a shadow industry that involved lawyers who would falsify records or rely on jaladoras or pullers who would find babies. Sometimes these children were stolen outright, but other times their actions were immoral but not criminal. As Rachel Nolan, author of an article about Guatemalan adoptions in the April issue explains, Jaladoras would approach women in marketplaces, ask them, you know, you're pregnant, can you really pay for another child? Would you like my help? Would you like to set that child up with a wonderful life in the United States, in Europe? So these approaches were sometimes criminal when women would offer to pay birth mothers for their children. But unless it crossed that line under international or Guatemalan law, the approach itself, while coercive, was not illegal. I spoke with Nolan about the convoluted and painful ways by which adoptees are returning to Guatemala in search of their parents, as well as the larger issues around wrongful adoption in Guatemala and other parts of the world. So I'm not going to say that every country in Central America is just teeming with racism, but racism is such a huge part of this story, and particularly in how it played out legally and which communities in Guatemala were targeted for this adoption scam. So can you talk a bit about that situation. And again, it's a huge topic. Racism in America is a huge topic. So why would it be any different in another country? I'm glad you asked that question because racism operates very differently in Latin America than it does in the United States. So I appreciate not assuming that U.S. categories make sense in the Latin American context. Guatemala is a unique case because unlike Mexico, for example, where there's a real culture of mestizaje mixing between indigenous groups and Spanish descended groups and mestizo culture has been valorized on the national scale. In Guatemala, there's still extreme social separation between non-indigenous groups, which are known as Ladino, and indigenous groups. And who fits in what category is not always very clear to outsiders because it's based not just on phenotype, but also on the kind of clothing that you wear. Do you wear handwoven traditional indigenous clothing? The language you speak, there are 22 Mayan languages. Do you speak Cacchiquel, Quiche, or do you speak Spanish? Many people are bilingual. They change their clothing. So these identities are somewhat fluid. However, um, Guatemalans who uh, belong to indigenous groups are discriminated against in wild ways. Since the conquest, they've been victims of extreme forms of violence, the most recent and well-known of which was the genocide of the 1980s as part of the Guatemalan Civil War. So when I began to research um, Guatemalan adoption, it was not a surprise to me that the groups targeted for some of the more coercive um, forms of sourcing children for adoption were either indigenous women or poor women or women who were both indigenous and poor. The Civil War set the stage for this. There was a genocidal agenda set by the government, and this was something that was totally supported by the U.S. Can you talk about that conflict and sort of the other legal things that led up to adoption laws being basically negated and this whole shadow industry popping up? Right. So there are two different 
issues at play here. There are two different kinds of adoption in Guatemala, effectively. Um, thing number one is the Guatemalan Civil War. As you said, there was a genocidal agenda for part of the Civil War, but it was a very long conflict. The Civil War lasted from 1960 to 1996, and the um, time period during which the UN-backed Truth Commission found that there had been genocidal acts committed was just in the early 80s. So what began as a Cold War-era conflict of guerrilla fighters who were mostly based in the capital, who weren't necessarily indigenous, trying to take down a right-wing military dictatorship, ended with the Guatemalan government with U.S. backing, as you so rightly say, deciding that indigenous peoples were the enemy and could be massacred, men, women, children, combatants, non-combatants in scorched earth campaigns in indigenous villages in the highlands. So it's a quite complicated conflict. Um, Forcible adoptions of indigenous children is only one element of that conflict, but it's not particularly well known. So part of Um, What I was trying to do with research for this piece and for my dissertation, which one day will become a book, was really understand the issue of forcible adoptions. However, as you rightly said, during the Civil War, a second um, thread of adoptions opened up, and those were the private adoptions. So in 1977, the Guatemalan Congress passed a law privatizing adoptions, saying basically you just needed a private judge to find an adoptable child to find a family that wished to adopt, to match the two, get a rubber stamp from the Ministerio Público, which is like the attorney general's office, and the adoption would be done in the eyes of the law. There was very little to no judicial oversight. And so the children who were placed through the first system, through state adoptions during the Civil War, tended to be indigenous, whereas the children placed through the second system, the private adoption system, many of them were just poor. Some of them were indigenous, but not all of them. And one one set of adoptions has an ideological component, and the other really is a commercial form of adoption. For those two different types of adoptions, did this country to which these children were sent change, or was it just sort of a free-for-all? The recipient countries for Guatemalan adoptees changed over time. So the early adoptions uh, involved a lot of families in Canada and in Europe. Spain, Italy, Belgium were popular. France were popular destinations for adopted children. After the commercialization of adoption, because of growing interest um, on the part of U.S. families for adopting from abroad, the U.S. quickly took over as the leading recipient country for adoptees. So when I was doing research for the story and interviewing Alberto, who is a Belgian adoptee, I'm well aware that there's a whole cohort of younger adoptees who are perhaps not looking for their birth parents yet, but may later, who are growing up currently in the United States. You talk a bit about this in your piece, where there's a clear analog happening right now in the U.S. with child separation policy. And there are obviously other situations in American history, a similar separation of children on dubious grounds from indigenous parents. The problems with Russian adoptions have been well documented. And that's another country that has sort of stopped doing international adoptions because of how gruesome and careless everything was. I was in the weeds with interviews and archival research in Guatemala for so long that when I came back to the United States, I lived in Guatemala on and off from 2015 to 2017, and I go back a lot. And when I came back to the United States to write my dissertation and took a kind of broader look at what a um, common historical pattern this has been, not just in the U.S., as you so rightly mentioned, but also in Canada with something called the 60s scoop, where First Nations children were separated from their families and put up for adoption with white families. 
in Australia with the so-called lost generation, not to mention ideological and then commercial adoptions in Franco Spain. I mean, this it, it actually the historical examples and geographical diversity of cases proliferates so much that it's tempting to see it as sort of a global historical uh, and social pattern. Um, so I actually have started looking for cases where this has not happened instead of where it has happened because it's it happens on such a wide scale. You mentioned um, the United States. I want to give credit to the Associated Press for doing an excellent investigative report on, very disturbing investigative report on children separated, migrant children separated from their families at the U.S. border, entering adoption proceedings without the consent of their parents. And the numbers of such cases are unknown because as the Associated Press makes clear, it's very difficult to do that research at numerical scale. But we know that children have been... um, adopted in particular by evangelical Christian families who, from their perspective, are doing the right thing and saving us all. However, they're going through adoption proceedings without um, explicit consent of the birth mothers and fathers. When thinking about adoption on a global scale, it's useful to have in mind the drug trade, which is sometimes described as if you a balloon. If you squeeze the balloon in one area, it will expand in another area. Mm. So w- when uh, Romania shut down, a lot of that demand was redirected to Guatemala. When Guatemala shut down, a lot of that demand was redirected to Haiti, Cambodia, and other countries, Ethiopia. Um, And so while similar abuses have been documented in a lot of countries, um, there's usually another, a new country that's open for international adoption, even as a place like Guatemala closes, as it did in 2008. The right to know your parents is something that everyone feels, and it becomes sort of this this prized thing for people who have been adopted, that is, they have a right to know and that they will want to know. And obviously, that's why people have documentation on these things. Part of the part of the reason why. Is that a more recent historical phenomenon? Or is it something that has kind of always existed? Adoptees in the United States in the early 20th century had no right to see their own birth records. Adoption files were sealed, and that included lack of access for adoptees. So the idea that it's a right for adoptees to know who their birth parents were or are Mm -hmm. is relatively recent. However, it has become incredibly widespread, and now it would be very difficult to find an adoption agency that would be unwilling to unseal records if it was the adoptee requesting that information. DNA testing, Ancestry.com, all of the innovations that people love to give one another for Christmas presents are making it even more appealing for adoptees to search for their birth parents than perhaps in the past, although I think that that impulse is consistent. However, adoptees are now conducting those searches with more access to information than they may have in the past. And you describe this organization that Alberto goes to that does sometimes offer genetic testing that has some information, but that ironically, a lot of these adoptees can't who are who've been placed over abroad and now want to return to Guatemala to find their parents are relying on Halodoras, who are pickers, who were the ones that originally stole them, coerced their mothers, stuff like that, because they are really the only ones who know how this happened. So can you talk a bit about that experience? So when adoptees are coming to Guatemala to try to search for their birth parents, they have only a few avenues open to them. Most of them have a address written in their adoption file that 
was the address of their birth mother the year that they were put up for adoption. The birth mother may no longer live in the same place. I mean, there are all kinds of things that could have happened in the meantime. Um, so they can either choose to search by themselves, which sometimes involves going to rural areas. Perhaps the adoptee was not raised speaking Spanish in most cases, or sometimes involves going to quite dangerous areas of Guatemala City, El Limón, other um, areas that it's really not safe to go to unless you're accompanied by someone from that community. Mm -hmm. um, another option that adoptees have is to hire someone to help them search. These people are just called searchers. And as you mentioned, some of the people who currently work as searchers were former jaladoras, because as you say, they understand how the system works and they know how to search for people in Guatemala. The only searcher I was able to interview insisted that she had not been a jaladora, but she had done a staggering number of searches. She claimed to have done more than 400 searches for birth parents, um, charging about US $1,000 per child per search. So the business of adoption may have dried up in Guatemala, but some of the um, side businesses around yeah. it certainly <laughs> have not. Yeah. And Mako is a completely different um, proposition. By Mako, I mean Marco Antonio Garavito, who's the head of a NGO in Guatemala City that does all kinds of historical memory work, but also helps match parents who are searching for children who were lost, appeared, lost or disappeared during the war with adoptees who are searching for their parents, and not just adoptees, children who grew up in Mexico, children who were informally adopted by other families, et cetera. And Mako does the service completely for free. It's an NGO that operates on a shoestring. And he, because he's been trained as a social psychologist, I think offers some of the best free services for adoptees who are coming back to Guatemala. And he, Mako really helps prepare adoptees for some of the more disconcerting things that they may find in their search. So I have a lot of respect and affection for him and the work that he does. Yeah. This shadow industry of the former adoption industry is is coming from this, again, this sort of this desire to know, but it's also larger part of a historical correction that is needed to take place in that country that is sort of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission can sort of start, but that's just the start of it. So can you talk about that process of sort of like, has there been a larger scale reckoning of the events of the Civil War and, you know, the other sort of traumas associated with it? No, there hasn't. Neither in Guatemala nor in El Salvador. It, I mean, it never happens. It's, well, Germany. It's a loaded, well, yeah. I lived They're in, an exception. <laughs> I li I, yeah, I lived in Germany for two years. Um, and there's a German word, as there is for everything, for the process through which Germans denazified their country and really reckoned with the past. And man, when you cross the border to Austria, do you feel the difference? Because Austria has not <laughs> undergone that process. Yes. And it's the differences are very notable. Um, so Germany is considered the model in that regard. Guatemala is better. I won't say that. Guatemala had two truth and reconciliation committees, one of which was backed by the United Nations, both of which um, took place after the Civil War. One of Guatemala's Truth and Reconciliation um, Commissions was backed by and funded by the United Nations. The other was backed and funded by the Catholic Church. Mm. And the day that the um, Catholic Church publicly um, announced its findings, including um, blaming the government for the majority of violence, which we now all know 
was the case, the um, archbishop in charge of that effort, Archbishop Girardi, was bludgeoned to death in the garage next to his house. And that crime has officially never been solved in Guatemala. Francisco Goldman wrote a wonderful book about it called Who Killed the Bishop? Mm-hmm. But it's known that the that the um, hit was traced back to the army. So to answer your question in the most violent possible terms, there has been no reconciliation in Guatemala. The truth commissions were both very important steps forward. There have been um, ongoing war crimes trials, which uh, many indigenous and non-indigenous, but many indigenous Guatemalans have testified at very bravely, some of whom covered their faces in order to testify. Um, But during one of those trials, bumper stickers were seen around Guatemala City that said there was no genocide here. So it's, it's an official discourse of genocide denial. There's a organization made up of former army officials in Guatemala whose purpose is to deny that genocide took place. One of the more everyday repercussions of the war and the adoption black market is that a lot of Guatemalans are afraid of signing their children up for free lunch programs or other sort of beneficial programs because there is this taint of, well, maybe they're going to take my child away. And that these things that could ostensibly help lots and lots of people can't because there hasn't been that transparency isn't there and that somebody being like well you know adoptions weren't so bad and maybe there wasn't a genocide one of the most distressing outcomes of the war is that the social fabric in guatemala has been torn very badly and there's a lack of trust there's silence and there's lack of trust i've never done interviews in a country where people are so reluctant to talk Um, and really the only way to approach someone and have them feel, um, comfortable talking to you, not in general, you can interview people about many subjects, but particularly about things that happened during the war is to be introduced by someone who's already known to them, because then you're considered a persona de confianza, someone who is worthy of trust and you, you can enter into their life or interview them in some way. If you cold call someone in Guatemala, they might not pick up because people get extorted by gangs on their cell phones. So they don't pick up for um, unknown numbers, but also because they they will say, who are you? Why, why are you calling me? So I worked with a very talented um, Guatemalan historian named Silvia Mendez, who would often do those first phone calls um, with people that I wanted to interview in order to convince them in Guatemalan accented Spanish with her considerable skills and charm that I was not someone who would bring bad things into their life before I could even think about doing an interview. Do you feel like that necessity for confianza, for that that confidence, for that legibility, like that cultural legibility of like, this is somebody you can trust, is it is also kind of an impediment to fixing this problem? Part of the truth and reconciliation model is that it's partly from the outside and it's partly from the inside. And people are coming in and sort of trying to make recommendations and say, hey, these people should go to jail. And this is probably how you should uh, maybe integrate your schools and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not saying like this is necessarily a unique problem to Guatemala, because obviously if some group came into America and was like, hey, you know, the slavery thing doesn't seem like you've dealt with it. Maybe you should try doing this. I couldn't imagine it happened. It would be totally rejected. But is that part of why that social fabric hasn't remeshed itself? There's been some progress since the Civil War. So I don't want to make it sound as if things are incredibly dire in Guatemala. You know, 
in every respect. Um, I remember reading after some of the more brutal police shootings in the U.S. that China mm-hmm. had sent a human rights commission yes. to investigate. <laughs> and I found that U.S. Um, ruffled feathers over this, I found quite amusing. Um, and the Chinese were right to send that commission as far as I'm concerned. Latin America is particularly sensitive about U.S. connected truth commissions Rightly or so. <laughs> U.S. connected anything. And bad, as, bad track record. Right. So as with the Truth and Reconciliation uh, commission process in Guatemala. Um, I would say the same thing that I say when people ask me about what's happening in Venezuela now. It would be best if the changes came from within the country rather than through intervention, whether well-meaning or military from outside the country, particularly mm-hmm. from the United States, because U.S. intervention in Latin America has a long and checkered history. So I certainly um, think that the Truth and Reconciliation commissions were a huge step forward in Guatemala. But the country also needs time. The Civil War only ended in 1996. And the adoptees are a way of thinking about that process of reconciliation in Guatemala as an ongoing project, because, you know, more and more adoptees will come back and and be forced to educate themselves about the Guatemalan Civil War, which is not necessarily taught in U.S. high schools, for example. Right. Reading different accounts of children who were taken no two stories are the same and not simply because they were being taken by different people, but because it seems like there needed to be a level of this can only happen once so that people wouldn't catch on more. Could you talk about maybe the larger reasons why that was and how, aside from the money factor, why it took so long to put an end to this? Okay, I want to be really clear about one thing, which is that the vast majority of children who were put up for adoption through the private system were not kidnapped. Right. So the majority of cases were coercion, not kidnapping. Even the case of Alberto, as far as we know, he may have been kidnapped, but statistically speaking, it's likely that he wasn't. It's likely that he was either coerced or consensually given up for adoption. But we don't know what the circumstances of that were, because as you say, each case Um, seemed somewhat different, although some patterns emerge. Why did it take so long to draw this process to an end? This is something that I've been asking myself for many years. Mm. I have been researching this topic for a really long time. And particularly as I realized that the U.S. Embassy in Guatemala was aware of these abuses beginning in the 1980s, Mm. and Guatemalan adoption didn't end until 2008, of course, the question arises, why the delay? The answer, I mean, there are many answers. One thing was that um, adoption was lucrative for many people in Guatemala and in the U.S. Another was that international adoption is easily and often rightly framed as a humanitarian act. Right. So there there was a kind of um, humanitarian gloss over adoption that made it seem apolitical, despite the fact that international adoption is and has always been a very political act. The other reason for the very long duration of criminal and semi-criminal rings that were involved in adoption in Guatemala is that the lawyers who arranged adoptions always had plausible deniability. Mm -hmm. The lawyers always had plausible deniability because if there were police raids on nurseries, which would sometimes occur, the women who were arrested were usually the babysitters, the caretakers, or at most the jaladoras, the women who worked um, searching for children, it was very easy for the lawyer to say, 
oh, I had no idea that that was where the children came from because they weren't doing the work of going into poor or indigenous communities and trying to find children who were adoptable. So if the people working for them crossed the line into illegality, they could plausibly say, oh, I had no idea. And keep in mind that the Guatemalan laws until 2008 were very permissive. So the lawyers were often, they were, they were keeping their noses clean. They were acting within the strictures of the law. So when adoption rings can continually renew themselves because only the kind of lowest rungs are getting wiped out by police raids, you can understand why these structures stayed in place for a long time. But you just mentioned... Um the sense that you're doing a good deed, that this is a humanitarian act by taking in a child and you're sort of giving them new life. And there's this whole narrative around that, which is particularly embraced by evangelical Christians. And Latin America is traditionally thought of as a sort of a Catholic continent, even though now all over the continent, evangelical in that country, and then of course, coming from the US, sort of that feedback loop is a political force. So can you talk a bit about the role of evangelicalism in all of this? Sure. The role of evangelical Christians in the history of adoption in the U.S. is really interesting and dates back to the Korean War. Some of the Congress's laws allowing for international adoption and setting up structures um, for these adoptions were lobbied for by um, evangelical Christians who went to Korea and brought children back to the United States who were the mixed race children of Korean women and sometimes black, sometimes white GIs, like soldiers who were serving in Korea. And um, there's a great book on this by Arissa Oh called To Save the Children of Korea, I believe. It's a fantastic book about the history of how the structures of international adoption were set up in the U.S. Because any of the international adoptions after that from any country in the world kind of followed the grooves that were set during the um, Korean War as as Arissa O shows. So in the Guatemalan context, you're right to say that it's a majority Catholic country. However, Guatemala has one of the highest proportions of evangelical Christians anywhere in Latin America, along with Peru. Brazil also has a large evangelical Christian um, population. And when, when I say evangelical, I mean Pentecostal Christian. So speaking right. in tongues, um, adherence to something called the gospel of prosperity, which is every bit as noxious as you can imagine <laughs> from the name of it. So that history began in Guatemala in 1976 mm -hmm. because there was a terrible earthquake that shook the capital and the surrounding areas and was actually the proximate reason for Congress passing the law to privatize adoptions in 1977 huh. because Congress said, we should speed up international adoptions. That would be a humanitarian act. There were so many children who were orphaned by the earthquake and in the meantime, after the earthquake, evangelical Christian aid groups had come in from the United States and worked in aid projects. And their aid was, I'm sure, most welcome. I mean, the mm -hmm. country was really devastated. But those groups began to convert Guatemalans in large numbers. And some of the connections between people who came down and set up churches in Guatemala and contacts with would-be adoptive families in the U.S., those channels were set up after the earthquake as well. In the larger sort of cultural context, and understanding of adoption, the idea is that you want a newborn or you want a very small baby. Because if you get an older child, maybe they're a little bit more developed and maybe you won't be able to make a connection with them, which is not true. But clearly, like there are a lot of children in the US who are in foster care. And yet there are so many instances of parents going to other countries if it's Eastern Europe, you can probably understand why. There's probably a racial component to that. It's not that hard to imagine. 
But could you talk a bit about that within this Guatemalan context and then also maybe just larger in terms of the U.S.? Why babies? Sure. It's funny that you mentioned Eastern Europe because when I was doing research in Guatemala, I learned that of the Guatemalan families that formally adopted children, um, many were wealthy, elite families who adopted from the Ukraine Ah. or Costa Rica because those children were white. Um, and fa- elite families in Guatemala that took in indigenous children from their own country did so on the terms of domestic servitude, right. not adopted children, for the most part, with exceptions. Why babies? And why Guatemala as a particularly appealing destination for people from the U.S.? Laura Briggs has a really interesting theory about this. She's an um, American studies scholar. She relates the turn toward international adoption in Latin America and other countries on the part of U.S. families to the crack babies phenomenon and moral panic in the United States. And so she reads this as another instance of fairly straightforward racism. Even U.S. families who subconsciously, I mean, this isn't it's not like people are writing on their uh, adoption applications. I'm racist, so I want to adopt a Guatemalan (laughs) child because I think of them as less black than an African-American child. Um, even you're um, thinking it, you know it. It's all over the. Actually, I don't think so. You know. <laughs> no, I I know. Um, no, I mean, I remember I was right before I went to college. I worked in a hospital in a, like a records department, and one of the women there was unable to conceive with her husband, and she was like doing all these different adoption things, and she had to go to private adoption for some reason. And she and they were like, she's like, yeah, they said that. Do you want a black baby? And I was like, no. And I was like. Okay, wow. but there it is. I mean, because it, it is, a, it, obviously, like, it is and isn't there. And yeah. some people feel comfortable saying that. And then maybe other people, uh, it, it isn't even in their mind. Maybe they just want to help the Guatemalan babies. Right. And I will say that there were many evangelical Christian families who wanted to adopt children from Guatemala. There were also solidarity adoptions of yeah. people on the left who had heard about Rigoberta Manchu and thought that they could save a child from a you know, vicious, genocidal government. So there were many different motivations. I really don't want to characterize the adoptive parents as all belonging to one group. Mm-hmm. Um, after having read a lot of applications for adoption for Guatemalan children, both through the state orphanages and in private adoptions, I was surprised. I went into the research thinking, not vilifying adoptive parents, but really questioning their motives. Mm -hmm. And then when you read their applications, yes, some parents write in a very straightforward way, particularly in the 1980s, this language kind of falls out in the 1990s. But in the 70s and 80s, you see parents writing, I want a child who is as young and white as possible. And you think you are adopting from Guatemala, what kind of white child did you really have in mind? Um, And then you'll see a back and forth with the head of the orphanage or with the lawyer in question about what what the child phenotypically might look like. Mm. Um, However, I I also read a lot of accounts of infertility, long struggle to um, want to adopt. And so the desire for a baby or the desire for a speedy adoption are more understandable in that context. And one of the reasons that so many people wanted to adopt from Guatemala was that the process was very short compared to other places, Mm. including compared to domestic adoptions. So while I think that many adoptive parents could and perhaps should have done more research about the country that they were adopting from or learned more or tried to get in touch with the birth families, realistically, a lot of adoptive, uh, a lot of um, adoption lawyers were explicitly trying to hide information from adoptive families or not fill them in about how Jaladores worked, for example. 
And many adoptive parents didn't speak Spanish. So it's to expect them to go and do the research on their own in a country that was war-torn and really quite, quite dangerous already also doesn't seem reasonable. So I actually came out of the research for this story and for my dissertation with a lot of empathy for, I mean, empathy, I don't know, but much more sympathy for adoptive families um, than perhaps I went in with. Mm. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say was that since the story came out, I've been hearing from quite a lot of adoptees. Um, and also one woman who I won't name because she hasn't given me permission to do so, obviously, who wrote to me and said that she had tried to adopt a child in Guatemala and spent a night in jail there because it turned out that that child had been trafficked or kidnapped or there was some illegal mm-hmm. issue with her adoption. And she wrote to me and she, I, I'll never forget it, she said in her email, I, I couldn't breathe the entire time that I read your story because she now felt that she'd gone to Guatemala in a completely naive way and, as she wrote in her email, felt more focused on her desire to be a parent than on the context of the child that she might be parenting. And so that email really moved me, and I can imagine myself into her approach at that time. And I can only imagine her rethinking that now with some of the knowledge that she might have and how difficult that might be. Yeah, that must be terrible. Well, she didn't adopt. So she 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 came home. Right, right. Well, I think we can end it there. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate the conversation. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced and edited by Violet Luca. The music is Cut in Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org slash save.